Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, I'm joined here in studio with Dermot Whelan. He is one of our senior consultants here at MCG and a hell of a nice guy. He's got a pretty storied history of uh, NYPD. He was a sergeant in the Albany Police Force. He was a criminal investigator for the Justice Center. It goes on and on and on. We'll get to some of that while we're talking, Dermot. He's laughing over here. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is, good, is great having you here uh, in studio, if you will, to record one of these podcasts with us is... I want to talk today about, you know, investigating crime. So, you know, we have uh, abuse and neglect allegations, but now we know that there's an allegation that a crime's been been committed. And um, let's talk about investigating crimes against specifically people with disabilities who live in a facility. And, and I think it's going to be important to define facility, right? So uh, some places think about, some people may be thinking about a facility as an actual facility where there's um, multiple people, multiple residences, uh, there's uh, clinical staff, support staff. Other times people can think of a facility as like a group home or community home where there's four adults living with some staff and then maybe clinical staff in and out. It varies. Anything you want to add to that facility-wise? or No, I think that pretty much covers it. We've had different situations where it's like uh, assisted living environments where, you know, maybe two folks are living in an, in an apartment, but there's staff on uh premise right that would check in on them but i think you pretty much covered it cool so so let's do that let's say all right you're coming up it's a it's a group home or community home uh four adults intellectual disabilities male female doesn't matter let's uh, say it's four males or four females you know so you get this as a as a criminal investigator so as a, a police officer or, or a detective or an investigator you show up and there's a physical abuse allegation so what are what would be the number one thing or a couple things? You don't even have to pick one. A couple things that you would say, you know what? Um, any new investigator, even seasoned investigator to remember, uh, what do you want them to know? Because I, I, I know, you know, this is you. This is your 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 bag and you're incredibly talented and skilled in this area. Well, thank you for that. Uh, there are several things, I think, right off the rip that I would like people to know specifically first responders, law enforcement, that would be showing up to an allegation like that. I think from a mindset perspective, law enforcement, first responders need to become comfortable with the population. They need to recognize that people with disabilities are just that people and that they have abilities that are unique to them. They have the ability to remember and articulate what happened to them and what their experience is. And that it's important for first responders to actually interview victims on the scene and not just speak to a staff or the person that called in the allegation. I've seen that happen far too many times where you know we don't even talk to the victim or we don't talk to any of the potential witnesses that also reside in that facility <coughs> that could provide very viable information. Uh, I'm not sure if it stems from a sense of awkwardness with regarding a lack of familiarity with that population. They don't know how to interact. Uh, I know law enforcement isn't typically trained 
in interacting with people with intellectual and or developmental disabilities. So yeah, sometimes, I mean, right. I've conducted some of those trainings, but yeah, there's so much that comes in the academy. There's so much training and there's so many new things coming. It's really hard unless you have that experience. And that, that makes total, total sense to me. Um, yeah, sorry, keep going, keep going. So, you know, people with disabilities can really be very credible and very viable witnesses. Uh, they can provide very informative statements. They can lead you to evidence. They can testify, and I've experienced all of this uh, firsthand. So I'm, I'm not speaking just like theoretically. Right, right. Well, uh, and there's data to support you too. So really go in with the expectation that they can. Now, you may come across uh, a, a, a victim due to the nature and severity of their disability that they may not be able to communicate. They may not be able to, to report. But go in with the assumption that people can right i mean that that's where that's where I, that's where i know you are i mean i i would say the same as well right you want to go in with the assumption that they can you want to go in with the assumption that they possess normal intelligence until there are multiple data points that indicate otherwise and then you make adjustments accordingly um, what you also have to realize is if somebody let's say worst case scenario they really they can't communicate they can't gesture they can't signal anything to you um, and you're finding it next to impossible to effectively communicate with the individual. Then you have to start communicating with the people around that individual. Understanding the system of care that's in place uh, largely throughout the country, there's documents and reporting requirements and, and um, plans of care. There's, there's a robust amount of documentation that you can start looking into. And again, there's HIPAA considerations and disclosure things, but you can start asking staff questions. And I think when you start asking staff certain questions, if what they're responding with doesn't match up to maybe how that person is presenting or the injuries, yeah. y y the flags have to go off and you have to keep probing and asking yeah. questions. And you know, a, a restraint done correctly doesn't typically result in broken bones or lacerations. Bilateral rib fractures. <laughs> exactly. So you know, trust your instincts. If it, if it doesn't smell right, yeah. then keep asking questions. I mean, I, so that's a really good point. And I think, you know, it's the, the while you're trying to, trying to establish the fact pattern and you have all these sources of information, documentation, when you talk to people, and some of those things are incompatible, uh, that's when we start to start to question, all right, what am I really getting at here? And one of those sources of information is, you know, the individual themselves. And I think that that's a really key, key uh uh, point of all this and it made me think of I know uh, a case you had and I'm gonna call it the Falcon can case so can you can you can you share the uh, the Falcon can case because you tell it a little bit better than I do so. sure um, I think it's an exemplary case with you know getting information from staff that doesn't line up with yep. somebody's ability That's what made me think of it yeah and you know we 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 got a case I was assisting one of my fellow investigators with to do, you know, go down and do some interviews. And when we arrived at the group home, we spoke with a nurse. Now, a nurse, you look at it and say, okay, it's a medical staff. They're going to be a little bit more independent potentially because they're not like a direct support staff. They, they deal with, you know, folks in a different forum. And they seem to generally be a little bit maybe more, I don't want to say aloof, but separate from direct support staff on occasions. And you expect them because there's a nursing license and things like that. And they're providing medical care to be a little bit more in tune to the needs of folks. So we went down and we spoke with the nurse to get some background on our victim. I'll call him John. And there was the allegation was that John had gotten into an altercation with one of his fellow residents. And 
potentially was picked up and dumped on his head, sustained some minor injuries to the back of his head, his neck. So we went down, you know, trying to find out what exactly happened, if it was maybe some neglect with supervision or whatnot in the house that allowed this to happen. So we were told immediately, like, kind of good luck speaking with, with John because he's really not good at communicating. You might be able to get him to say a few words, if get him to focus on, on his pronunciation. Uh, he's going to be very preoccupied with telephone, so I would suggest you allow us to remove the telephones from the room, which we were like, sure, go ahead and do that. Yeah, he's going to perseverate yeah, on the telephone. perseverate on him. Sure. So we got the phones out of the room. John came in, and John started walking around the room and looking for the phones. <laughs> so we, we told John that the phones had been taken out of the room, and you know we started talking with him. And I assume at this point, you're already getting a sense like something's off here based on how John presented, right? Correct. It's, you know, I, I'm keeping an open mind based on the information sure, in the background sure. that I received from this nurse about his capabilities. Yep. So John proceeded to like kind of ignore us because we're new people in the room. So we're just small well, talking. Sometimes people just ignore you anyways, Dermot. Uh, true. <laughs> true. Maybe I'm not that impressive in person <laughs> when you first see me. But um, so John walked over to a closet. And it was kind of like an old bedroom in this house, which was now being used as a conference room. John looks at the closet. There's, you know, probably 75, 100 binders in the closet, three ring binders on numerous shelves, floor to ceiling. And John starts, like, visually scanning the binders, and he has, like, his right index finger up as if he's, like, reading them. And he pulls a binder off the shelf, comes over and sits down at the head of the table. So I'm thinking, all right, great. He's sitting down at least now. Like, right, we can exactly. continue talking, yep. explaining who we are. So I, I happened to ask John, John, what, what are you reading? And John started reading a very complex medical sentence out of what turned out to be his personal binder with all his personal information, his care plans, right. going his medical in, records. Right. right, so I'm- Going I'm, in, you're told, oh, he might be able to say a word or two. Right, so, and that's it. Not he can read and he can <laughs> write and, you know. Right, and it wasn't, and, and just to be clear, it wasn't like the nurse was trying to hide this from you. It was just perhaps her- engagement with him is was just at that level and she might not even have known correct and yeah. I, I i i started to really assume that and i i came to that conclusion at the end of this okay so while we're talking with john about this particular incident john says um my man fucking head <laughs> with a cane and i'm like all right i got mike hitting him in the head it sounded like a cane so i i said you know john can you focus on that i i think i understand you but can you repeat it again now the clearest the clearest word in his thing was mike and and fucking was by far the clearest word and and and, and apparently we can say fuck on this as you know so because it's uh, explicit so yes. we were told by maddie who's producing this we could say fuck or shit <laughs> i think but anyways <laughs> Okay, well, I'm paraphrasing, so <laughs> I'm going to try and keep it PG if I can. But um, <laughs> so uh, he he clarifies, and he ends up saying that Mike hit him in the fucking head with a can. And I'm like, okay, Mike, show me where he hit you. So John points to the side of his head. It was the right side of his head. And he had what I would qualify as the Olympic rings on his head. They were perfect symmetrical rings overlapping down the side of his head there's probably like four four impact sites so i'm like wow he got hit it looks like the base of a can so we got some more information out of john and it turns out that um the staff who was working with him the night before 
Uh, he spe specified the day, like we we're interviewing him on a Thursday, and he said on Wednesday, Mike was working and was in the bathroom, and he took a yellow Lysol can and hit me in the side of the head with the can. So we found the, the yellow Lysol can. We have the injuries on his head. We immediately got a medical attention, and then we found out that this staff, Mike, who was typically a day staff, worked overtime the night before and was assigned to John. And there's documentation that actually links him, like giving him a shower and the bathing. There's, there's just documents that uh, comprises a part of ordinary course of business. So then we're able to interview Mike and present that evidence that we have, plus the injuries on his head. And so here we go in looking at one particular case. It turns out we have another case that falls in our lap, and there's all this documentation to you know substantiate or help corroborate, I should say, that something happened and he got hit in the head with a yellow can of Lysol, which, again, rings on his head, yellow can of Lysol in the bathroom. It was kind of a, a highly credible uh, statement by him. Yeah, and, and, and what jumps out the most, of course, is you don't get any of that unless he tells you. Correct. And then I come to find out, well, firsthand that he can read, and then in my interview with Mike and other staff, we found out that John used to like to write sentences cursing out staff on the walls <laughs> of his bedroom. So, I remember one you know, of these. Yeah. What did he write? He wrote, like, <laughs> Mike's like an asshole yeah, or something. Yeah, Mike's a fucking <laughs> asshole on his, on his wall. And, you it, know, sounds staff like was, it. it sounds like Mike was. Yes, I, I don't think they got along well. Yeah. And you know, I go back to the nurse at the end of this, and I said, you know, I, I want to let you know something. Like, what do you do with him all day? Because right. do you just sit him down on the couch in front of the TV, or do you like try to help him Engage get him. stimulated and get, you know, exactly, get engaged? And she was floored when we told yeah. her that not only did we get all this information from him, but that he reads and that he writes. And, you know, that it's a little disheartening because that's somebody who's kind of responsible for his health and welfare you yeah, know, it, at that level. And you don't know your your patient that well. So. So, yeah. So, you know, not not that it's my job to defend or indict nurses, yeah. but uh, I'll I'll play a little devil's advocate on that is. It's possible that there's a number of tasks that they have to do that, given the amount of paperwork, given the amount of tasks that they have to do, that it, it does make it difficult to interact. So not necessarily trying to make an excuse or certainly not trying to make it okay, just trying to give an explanation. Because, you know, in general, people are trying to do uh, a good job. It makes me think of, uh, as you know, I've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and it makes me think of, I think this was in Singapore, but this facility could have been in um, Malaysia, just north of Singapore. And there was, uh, it was a home for kids and for disabilities. And there's like 30 in the home. And, you know, we've largely moved away from that, that congregate care. Uh, but in, in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia is where I've done a lot of my work, also primarily in Singapore. It's not a lot of space. There's not a lot of room to build things. So, uh, again, not necessarily trying to make it okay that we have still have congregate care, but that's the reality they live. And... You know, I remember I was there doing some behavior assessment, and at some point in another podcast, I'll talk about some of the <laughs> unique behavior management uh, strategies and cases we've had. But I remember, like, all the kids were interacting. Um, it was actually a pretty decent facility for congregate care, if you will, but there was a lot of engagement. But then, then I look over, and there's this sort of, like, small size, large child, small size, older child crib that a kid's just laying in there and he looks like he's sleeping. So I walk over and, I'm, and I go, hey, man. And I didn't expect anything. <laughs> the kid 
sort of turns over, opens his eyes in perfect English. Now, English is, so this must have been in, uh, yeah, I think it was in Singapore because the national language is English, but a lot of, there's a lot of Mandarin uh, speakers is there as well. But in perfect English, he goes, what's up, man? <laughs> and I was like, I said, what are you doing? He goes, uh, just chilling. And I remember saying, you know, hey, so what do you do when you're here? He's like, yeah, I usually just chill. I said, do people talk to you? He's like, yeah, they're pretty nice. But he was being he was being left alone. And, you know, he he could speak. He could interact with people. He seemed super nice. Um, but it, it was sort of sad that he was by himself and not interacting. He, he just sort of came to accept that. So, you know, you, you look at it and you say, you, you wonder, right? You wonder what, what the lives are of some of these folks in these facilities and sometimes staff are aware, sometimes they're not aware. And I think if we just, you know, to sort of wrap up here, we go back to the beginning and why we're doing these podcasts and why we're talking about this, why we do the training we're doing is to try to, you know, normalize the idea of disability is that that kid, unfortunately, he was in a, he was in a crib by himself, if you will. It was, it was almost like a bassinet. That's probably a better term. He's a kid, man. He's actually really funny. I wound up talking with him for a while. He's actually really funny and engaging. So, you know, remember, as you said in the beginning, I really I said that, like the first word, people with disabilities are people first. So um, I'm, I guess I just wanted to kind of end on that, but I'll give you the last word and then I'll say something else. No, I'm just kidding. You can have the last word. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the first step is, is learning to become comfortable around people that you might not be familiar with. And really listening to what they say, strive, you know, as law enforcement, I'd like to think, I, I always viewed myself and my coworkers as contact professionals, right? So what I mean by a contact professional is we're in contact with people day in, day out. Our job is to, to communicate with folks. And as contact professionals, you know, law enforcement also says we have to wear many hats to suit the situation, and it's true, they do. So part of this all ties in, and I think it's, it becomes law enforcement's responsibility to be the communicator and to establish the methodology in which we can effectively communicate with all different folks, whether they don't speak English, whether they have a speech impairment, um, whatever the, the barrier to communication is. If they have an intellectual disability, if they just need more time, setting the, pa the, the pausing, the patience, allowing them to access memories, that's on us as a contact professional to really figure out how we communicate with folks. I think first and foremost, you have to embrace that concept and you have to be willing to do that because when you are, then you will take the time to communicate with anybody from anywhere and you'll learn to listen to them. And with this population, don't dismiss them as being incredible just because they have a developmental or intellectual disability. These folks can generally tell you what their experiences were. And the more effective you are communicating with them, the better you will understand them. You'll get an ear, you'll develop an ear for their language. And you know, we talk about this in forensic interviewing with building rapport and, and establishing a baseline and narrative event practice. That's, that's how you develop the ear for understanding people. And when you, when you become more effective at asking questions in an open manner so that you're not leading or suggestive, you'll get really good information. I can't tell you how many cases, Scott, that you know, we took the time to talk to people and, you know, it matters. I, I'll tell you, I went in thinking, you know, having my theories about what will likely happen based upon my my previous experience. And mm -hmm. I was wrong. Yeah. You know, I went in open minded to listen. But I was like, wow, I like check myself out. I'm like, 
See that? Like that was my theory. Maybe it's my alternative hypotheses, if you will. But I went in and I learned out the truth of what happened. And I, I learned what avenues I had to go down to seek supporting corroborative evidence. And we had viable cases where, you know, people were abusers were removed from the field, people were arrested, you know, they lost their, their licenses, you know, nurses, uh, other folks. And you're like, wow, if if we didn't do this, this person wouldn't have gotten justice and they would have been, you know, continually victimized living in this environment. So it's very important to protect. Um, I know most law enforcement, if not all law enforcement, are really oriented to protect people. Sure. And, and these are some of the most vulnerable people in our population. They're highly victimized. So we really need to spend the time and, and protect them. Well, we'll leave it there, man. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. And for those listening, hopefully this was useful for you. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.